In states like Maryland and those even further south, summer heat can be exhausting, and not just for people. This week I sat down with Will Hamilton and Mariah Schwartz all the way from historic Charleston, South Carolina, to learn about how preservationists can best protect historic buildings from heat and humidity. Find yourself a cold beverage, sit back, and tune in. This is PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are joined by Will Hamilton and Mariah Schwartz, and they are coming to us from historic Charleston, South Carolina, and we're going to be talking all about the work of the Historic Charleston Foundation and how to preserve and protect historic structures in a tropical, humid climate down in the deep south. Will, Mariah, it's good to have you on PreserveCast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Appreciate it. So we always try and give people an opportunity to tell us about what brought them to preservation, because it, it always seems like it's an interesting path and it connects us to our guests. So, Will, if you want to take the lead on that and then maybe Mariah can pick up, how did you get involved in all of this? Similar to, to other folks, I'm sure, uh, growing up, my parents would take us to historic sites and places on vacation kind of trips like that. And in college, I studied history just because I enjoyed it, not because I wanted to be a historian or, you know, go to law school or anything like that. Graduated college and didn't really know what I wanted to do and started searching for graduate programs and came across one that Clemson and the College of Charleston offered as a joint master's program in historic preservation make a long story short, one thing led to another. I applied, got in, met my previous employer, Richard Marks, uh, who owns and operates Richard Marks Restorations in Charleston. He specializes in restoration of colonial period houses and sites. I worked for him for five or six years after, well, during and after graduate school. And that's when in 2011, um, I saw that the Historic Charleston Foundation had an opening for a property manager. So applied and was lucky enough to get the job. And here I am. And Mariah, how about you? You've got a bunch of letters after your name here. Why don't you read off those for everybody So and, and tell us what they mean and, and how they relate to preservation. <laughs> All right. I have CXA and LEAD AP. So I'm a certified commissioning authority and also an LEAD accredited professional. Awesome. Yeah. So for the lead qualification, you know, we do lead administrative work and consulting for, I'm sure you might be familiar with the USGBC, that's the United States Green Building Council, their lead certification program for buildings, the high performance building rating system. Right. So we can help buildings, whether they're existing or new, some historic to become lead certified. And then the commissioning authority certification Basically, that qualifies me as a professional to go into buildings and help the energy using system. So the HVAC, uh, lighting, domestic hot water systems like that, 
get started up and make sure they're designed, operated, and functioning as intended for the owner. So how'd you get into all of this? <laughs> so sort of like Will, I did a lot of going to historic sites and national parks and state parks as a child and on vacation with my family. So I think that sort of instilled the interest in me from an early age, whether I knew it or not. I went to college at University of Florida and graduated in their building construction program. So right after my undergraduate degree, I was employed with a large construction company down in Florida doing healthcare construction. And after about four years or so, I thought to myself, this isn't really what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I always kind of was drawn to the historic older buildings in construction and just as an interest in life and just walking around cities and things and appreciating older cities and historic buildings. So I started thinking, well, what could I do as a graduate degree? And then I discovered that there were master's programs in historic preservation all over the country. And I visited a few and actually got accepted to the same program that Will was accepted into, the Clemson University and College of Charleston joint program. And I was a few years after you, Will, so we weren't there at the same time. And then after I graduated from that program, I got a job with Whole Building Systems, which is where I still work. How I got my job was my thesis work during the program. And my thesis was about the Aiken Rett House, which we're going to talk about today. And it was basically, it's got a long title, so I won't read it out to you, but um, basically finding the most appropriate climate control system for the Aiken Rett House. Well, I'm sort of showing my true colors here. That really speaks to me, which is a funny thing to say. Because I previously, prior to being the executive director here at Preservation Maryland, ran a historic house museum, a big plantation home in, in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, and we grappled with the issues associated with how to deliver energy efficiency and heating and cooling to that massive house. I would have loved to have gotten my hands on your thesis at the time, which, you know, obviously I'm a true blue preservationist in that sense that I'd want to read a, a thesis on how to, how to deliver HVAC to a historic <laughs> home. But it sounds interesting. And, and so that's really one of, the, one of the reasons we wanted to get you both on here is talk through that because it's a challenge not only for people who manage historic properties that are open to the public, but even just people who have historic homes of their own. So, Will, you're the property manager for Historic Charleston Foundation. Why don't you tell people who aren't familiar with it, what is the Historic Charleston Foundation? What's your mission? What do you guys do? And then I guess there's a follow-up to that. What do you particularly do for them? Sure, yeah. The Historic Charleston Foundation is a nonprofit that was established in 1947 to preserve and protect the historical, architectural, and material culture that make up Charleston's rich and irreplaceable heritage. And currently, we're sort of working on that because we've gotten into some environmental conservation issues and planning efforts. So that will probably be tweaked here in the next year or so. But that's basically it currently. And as far as what I do with the foundation as the property manager, my, I do lots of different things. But one of my main responsibilities is to uh, manage and coordinate maintenance and repairs to three historic buildings, two of which are house museums, the Aiken Rett House, obviously, and then the, we operate the Nathaniel Russell House as well. And our office on East Bay Street is technically considered um, a historic house as well. So 
Yeah, you've got pretty sweet digs right there. I, I have walked by that house before and have been jealous of the people who get to work in there. So We're fortunate to have that space. We're on the third floor, and, and our office up there looks south and east over the harbor. So we're, we're lucky to, to be up there. That's quality row right there, certainly. So that's a big job, I, I would take it. I mean, you must be doing tens of thousands of dollars worth of projects every year on these buildings just to kind of keep them in good shape. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, you're exactly right. I tell people that it's job security for me, just with Aiken Rep. We do a <laughs> ton of work. And it involves everybody. I mean, it's not just our preservation department. We've got a philanthropy department, finance, obviously, marketing to help us with it. We have, we're fortunate again to have uh, a strong donor base. So we get a lot of money donated for specific projects. We've worked with various groups to get grants to do stuff. And then, you know, I have to establish a budget. So I go out and we'll get bids from architects and contractors and craftsmen that are specialists with particular things like masonry repair and carpentry and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a full-time job plus more at the Aiken Rat. Now, Mariah, I don't know if you would be the to one to toss this question to, or, or maybe will, but does one of you want to give us sort of the background on Aiken Rhett House? I mean, sort of the, the details and the specifics, what the history of the structure is and, and what it looks like today? Sure, yeah, I can try, and then Mariah will I'll jump in. I'll interject if I need to. Okay. Aiken Rhett was built circa 1820, it stayed in the family for around, I think, over 140 years. Mm-hmm. And the Charleston Museum purchased the property, I should say, in 1975. And then in 1995, we acquired it. We purchased the property to turn it into a, a house museum. And we, since 1995, have practiced sort of a preserved as found preservation philosophy there where we implement Currently, I mean, now we're talking new age technology and that sort of thing to keep it stabilized and in kind of a conserved state. So we like to think of it as kind of a lab of sorts to use new methods and technologies. So let me ask you this. I mean, you're describing obviously not restoration and perhaps not even rehabilitation, but just sort of keeping it as it was found. Is this for those who are familiar with like Drayton Hall? Is it kind of on that level or is it, I mean, when, if you were to walk into the structure, what would you see? Would you see a furnished space or what, what could uh, visitors expect to see? It is comparable to Drayton Hall. I don't think Drayton Hall has, it's not furnished, but we do have period furniture that has been installed inside the house and in outbuildings as well. I'll just say to add a little bit more to the description of the house, it's a Charleston double house that was finished in 1820, as Will said. Um, But over time, the family added on to the house because they were wealthy plantation owners. So it's a three-story house over a full basement. And then they added an east wing that had a very elaborate dining room in it. And then they also added an art gallery in 1858 to house the family's art collection because they traveled the world and collected pieces from all over. You know, when you come up Across this house. It's a very impressive house. The outside of it is this yellow ochre color and it's got bright green, hunter green shutters, which I guess is Charleston green, right, Will? Yeah, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's got these huge piazzas that wrap around the front 
of the house. So it's very magnificent and impressive when you come across it when you're walking down the street. Yeah, it, it encompasses the entire block that it sits on. There are two impressive outbuildings um, on the the north side of the property. One of them is part of the, or is included in the tour when guests come, but the other one is a, a stable that's, I guess the first floor of it, the first floor of the stable is part of the tour, but the second floor is not of the stable. So this is a, I mean, you're painting a picture of a pretty significant home. This is no normal historic structure. I mean, this is pretty massive. Most structures we run across here don't have art galleries in them. So, you know, that, that's pretty impressive. So what are the, you know, maybe this is a question to, to throw at Mariah first. What are the, the HVAC challenges here? I mean, to the person who wrote their thesis on this house and the challenges associated with it, I mean, how do you heat and cool something like this? That is a very good question. And first to kind of hint on what Will was saying, there preservation philosophy is in fact preservation and sort of preserve as found and conservation and only go in and repair and patch when they need to when something's detrimental and falling off like wallpaper falling off the mm-hmm. wall or a piece of plaster falling down things for the safety and health of the building occupants and visitors and things like that so currently there's only two areas of the house that are heated and cooled That being when you first go into the house, the bottom floor, the basement, most of it is heated and cooled where you have the gift shop where you buy your tickets for the tours. Um, There's an office space and the docent locker room, we'll say. (laughs) The docent break room, I guess, is a better term for it. And then the art gallery is heated and cooled and it's also dehumidified. But the rest of the house isn't. There's only a heating system and it's just a mild heating system that they use in the winter and in the swing months when you might have cool nights, but then it might warm up really quickly during the day. And that heating system is used to keep the interior surfaces of the house at a warmer temperature, say 60 to 68 degrees is what they run the heating system as just so that you don't get condensation on the surfaces inside the house. And we can talk about that a little bit more later. might be getting ahead of myself there. But the difficulty is with this house that is in the state it is in, historic buildings have much looser building envelopes than modern buildings do. So they have a lot more air infiltration and moisture migration into the building than modern buildings do. And also, since the Aiken Rett House is in this preservation state, the building envelope is not in, we say, its best condition. You know, there's holes in the plaster walls and things like that. So much more areas and rooms for moisture and air to migrate into the house. Interesting. Not only are we dealing with uh, a pretty significant structure, but we're also dealing with a structure that's in maybe even different shape than what you normally would see uh, when you go to commission a system for a place like this. Mm-hmm. And it's how do you control the interior environment in a building like this that has the envelope that is in the state it's in? So that's a big question. But then also, if you do want to control the interior environment, what are the best conditions in regards to temperature, relative humidity levels, air quality, things like that, that do a good job in 
preserving the building and its finishes, but are also somewhat comfortable for the building occupants. Yeah, I think that those are a series of good questions to kind of leave hanging there, because I think now is a good time for us to take a quick break. And then when we come back, perhaps we can have you and Will take us through how you answered those questions and what kind of system you came up with and and maybe give some insight to folks who are dealing with similar challenges in their historic property. And so we'll cover that when we come back after this quick break here on PreserveCast. And now it's time for a preservation explanation. You might have heard Nick ask if Will or Mariah could compare the Aiken Rhett House to another North Carolina site. Drayton Hall. Located along the Ashley River as it flows through into Charleston, South Carolina, Drayton Hall is a National Historic Landmark, a museum that is open to the public, and one of the oldest buildings still standing in South Carolina. In 1738, John Drayton, the child of wealthy plantation owners Thomas and Ann Drayton, purchased the land that would become Drayton Hall. His planned structure was just barely downriver from his family's estate, now also open to the public as the Magnolia Plantation and Gardens. But as the third son of one of the burgeoning colony's premier families, John suspected he might just not be in a position to inherit the family home and felt the need to make his own mark on the world. And he certainly did his part to make his new home a showpiece. Drayton Hall is the first known example of Palladian architecture in the United States. This style of architecture is based off of the work of 16th century Venetian architect Andrea Palladio. Influenced by Roman temples, key elements of Palladio's style include a focus on the front facade of the building and always keeping the setting or surrounding landscape of the building in mind during construction. Palladian architecture was at the height of fashion in 18th century Britain, and it was John Drayton's intention to build his plantation home in this style to make an impact with the local South Carolina elite. One contemporary South Carolina Gazette writer described the newly constructed Drayton Hall as a palace and gardens, and there are still some today who consider Drayton Hall an example of an American palace. So I think it worked out pretty well for John. At its height, Drayton Hall was the centerpiece of a plantation empire that managed thousands of slaves and 78,000 acres of land. Today, the main building survives relatively unaltered, having stayed under the care of the Drayton family until it was purchased by the National Trust in 1972. It serves as a museum that acknowledges both the physical beauty of the building as it stands today and the historical reality of the countless African people whose enslavement supported the extravagant lifestyle of John Drayton and his immediate descendants. Of course, there's more out there to learn about the different Drayton family plantations, and the depth of the human experience that is memorialized at Drayton Hall. But I don't want to keep you from Preserve Cast. Do you have questions? We may have answers. If at any point during this podcast you've thought of a question that you have for us or maybe one of our guests, we'd love to hear about it. You can send an email to podcast at presmd.org, and we'll try and answer it right here on the air on the next episode of PreserveCast.
This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. I'm joined by Will Hamilton and Mariah Schwartz, who are talking to me from historic Charleston, South Carolina. And we're talking about the Aiken Rhett House and the myriad of challenges associated with heating and cooling and caring for a historic house that is being preserved in place. And before we took our break, Mariah had posed a series of questions. And Mariah, maybe you could restate those as far as the challenges associated with doing all of this. And then perhaps you and Will can take us through what kind of solution you were able to craft for Aiken Rett. So the question is, when you have a building within the state that Aiken Rett House is in, a historic house museum that's being preserved in place, and the building envelope is in the condition it is in, what sort of interior environment do you want to create that is best for the building itself and all of its historic finishes, the collections that are being stored in it, and then also, can you do anything to satisfy the occupant comfort, the thermal comfort of the people who are in the building? And finding a happy medium that satisfies all three is really difficult sometimes, especially in historic buildings. (laughs) So, Will, do you want to take a stab at giving us a a snapshot of what ended up happening and and how you were able to accomplish this? Well, we actually hired a consulting firm to help us with this, and they gave us several recommendations as far as, you know, how to or the best way to try and control the relative humidity and temperature in the house. Or One way that they recommend doing this is to come up with a It's basically a spreadsheet that we have that includes various times of the year, days, months, that sort of thing. And there's a schedule as to when we should open and close windows in the house. So in a sense, you are historically handling heating and cooling by, you know, relying on something as technologically advanced as opening and closing a window. Right. Yeah. And I mean, we've got, especially I'm just thinking about in the summertime with the, when the relative humidity goes up and the temperature goes way up, we've got fans that we place in various areas to help move air throughout the building. I guess you'd call them passive methods to help cool and heat the house in the warmer and cooler months. I was just going to add to that, that I completed my thesis work before HCF hired the consultants. That grant was sort of in the works as I was doing my thesis work. But I went into my thesis thinking, oh, I'm going to come up with this really fancy HVAC system with all this new technology, and it's going to solve their problem, and it's going to be great. But after I did all my investigations and my research and my case studies and investigated all the passive heating and cooling methods in the house, as well as the mechanical ones, I sort of came up with the same conclusion that the consultants did, that it's better to implement the passive methods of climate control in this historic house. And that that's going to end up being the most, one, cost-effective but efficient method of doing so. And it's also going to be what's best for the building and its finishes. And does that have a lot to do with the fact that the building envelope is so leaky that Really, whatever you're trying to do, you're always going to be fighting against that. And so you might as well kind of work with that through the passive method. Exactly. So with the leaky building envelope, that's really going to be your best option. Because if you were going to go in and say, I want to put in a 
chill water and heating hot water cooling systems, several air handler units in the house. You would have to do so much improvements to the building envelope that you're looking at a multi-million dollar project. It's just not going to be cost effective. To get that building envelope up to where it needs to be to be able to maintain those temperature and humidity set points in the house, it would be very intrusive and very cost prohibitive to do that. So Will, has this worked? How long has it been implemented and have you still been dealing with humidity challenges and all those sorts of things or or is sort of the passive method working for you guys? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's definitely working. We use data loggers throughout the house to gauge relative humidity and temperature levels year round. Once a month I download these things and they get uploaded onto my desktop computer. So I've got a chart each month that shows me where these levels are. And when they get out of whack, we can go back and look at our shutter and window schedule and tweak that if we need to. But we haven't, we ha- I haven't seen any, I guess you could call it like negative fluctuations since we implemented this. It's, all, it's been, everything has been good and it has worked out for us well so far. Now, what about guests? In the interest of full disclosure, I am, I'm a Yankee. I was born in Buffalo, New York, and grew up there. So as I kind of chuckled to myself when you were saying you needed a mild heating system in the winter. I thought everybody needs a mild heating system in Charleston, <laughs> South Carolina. Um, but uh, it's not just Aiken Rhett. But, you know, when, when you visit Charleston, particularly if you're there during one of the oppressive months of, uh, you know, July or August or something like that, I mean, it, it's hot. You know, so when people come into the house, are they sort of taken? Are they thinking, what, there's no air conditioning in this place? Do you get complaints or do people kind of, you know, accept it? Well, they accept it, but I'll just say that we do have a sign that we put out in the summertime at the front entrance that clearly says this house is unconditioned and it's, you know, you're going to get the authentic experience. (laughs) And, And they don't have to pay extra for that authentic experience though, right? That just, that comes with the tour. There you go. Yeah. They're made aware of that at the ticket counter as well. So we might hear, you know, some folks say, yeah, it's hot, but there's not a whole lot of, you know, complaining, so to speak. And just to give us some background, and I, I know Mariah was going to jump in, but it, just to give us some background, how many people are coming through Aiken Rhett on a yearly basis? Oh, gosh. Um, thousands. I'm not sure of the exact number I'd have to get with our house manager, but it's, there. there's a lot of people that come through that's pretty significant. Right. And Mariah, you were going to jump in, I think, and offer something. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say well, one of two things. That One, you all do have a, a safety check in place. So if the heat index is above a certain amount, you close the house down, right? Right, right. And that heat index, it's 100, I guess you'd say 100 degrees, but the heat index is relative humidity combined with the outside temperature to get that. So. Yep. And then also just sort of on what visitors experience when they come into the house. I know from being there and doing my thesis work and interning at HCF that a lot of people come to the house and think, oh, no, this poor house, you know, it's it's in such decay and they must not be able to take care of it. They don't have, you know, things like that. But they don't understand that that's how the house is being interpreted. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting to get people's different perceptions once they go there. It's an unconditioned, unrestored historic house museum. Not typically what people expect when they go visit historic house museums. But I find that once people go there versus, you know, a restored house mm-hmm. museum like Nathaniel Russell House, which you all own, a lot of people like Aiken Rent House better. Yeah. 
And you hear that about Drayton as well, which is a, a you know a similar experience down there. Uh, Mariah, just curious, kind of following up on this thread and this thought here. You know, this works obviously in a situation like Aiken Rhett, where people are expecting or or at least are willing to accept a historic experience and kind of recognize the value, perhaps of these passive technologies being used to heat and cool the space. Are you seeing this, though? Is there an embracing of passive technologies outside of a house museum sitting like this? Do you try and employ this elsewhere in your work, whether it be with other historic buildings or just non-historic new build sort of things? Or are we seeing more passive? Is there is there some embracing of that? I think there is an embracing of that with people becoming more and more concerned with energy efficiency um, and wanting to get energy costs down. You know, I think it might be more acceptable in the historic building environment and historic house museums. Now, I will say there is a church in Charleston that we did a project for, and it had never been air conditioned before, but it had a radiator heating system, and they wanted to install an air conditioning system so that they could have events and services there in the summer. And we convinced them to, let's not put a full-blown, full-capacity cooling system in. Let's just put one in that can temper the air down to, say, 80 degrees or 78 degrees so that it's tolerable for the people to be in the building. Um, But it's also good for the building and the finishes itself because it's keeping that interior environment more closely in line with the exterior environment. Once we explained the significance of that and what it would do to help protect their building. The the church was on board. Now, modern, <laughs> modern building and, you know, office situations, I think the creature comforts and human nature, it's kind of harder to change occupant behavior. We try, even in modern buildings, to get people to bump up their thermostat set points to say, you know, even 75 or 76 in the summer bump it down in the wintertime to 68 or even lower if you can and, you know, really try to save on energy costs and as well as keeping the building more in line with what's going on outside to minimize that moisture migration and air infiltration into the building. Yeah. Well, it's interesting though. I mean, because even in modern office buildings, if you don't have working windows that sort of, you lose the ability to even engage in any of those passive activities. So uh, maybe there's something to be learned from our historic architecture that uh, we could re-embrace. And and I think that, you know, with the lead AP after your name, you're probably, uh, (laughs) you know, singing. We're singing from the same songbook here, but, you know, I think that there's some value to that as well. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I, I am starting to see more and more operable windows being installed in modern buildings so that people do have some control over their little local microclimate. Something about being able to breathe fresh air and get that sunlight in is, I don't know, it's key. Yeah, it's a, it's a novel idea. I'm, I'm glad yeah. to see it's being embraced. Uh, <laughs> so, Will, we don't let anyone uh, leave PreserveCast, and, and Mariah is going to be on the same hook here, but we're coming to you first without telling us about their favorite historic property, historic building. I know you'll be in a tough place because you're, you're representing the Historic Charleston Foundation and uh, you know, you'll be inclined to give us one of their properties perhaps, but if you had a historic, favorite historic property, what would it be? Well, can I say two? two I, I suppose. We normally <laughs> try and make this pretty hard and fast as a one. We try and make people you know, make that difficult choice, but if you can only do two, we'll take two. 
Well, quickly, so with the foundation, I like the Aiken Red House. I think it's a it's a really neat space, and I've enjoyed working there. And number two would be uh, the Beaufort, South Carolina Arsenal, which I had the opportunity to work on back when I was working with Richard Marks Restorations to do some structural masonry work and window repairs and things like that. That was a really neat space to, to be in at the time as well. Very cool. And Mariah, how about yourself? I'm going to have to be the cliche and say the Aiken... Aiken Red House, just because of how much time I spent there and how much work went into uh, my. You know, I'm I, I not to be a stickler, but I'm not sure. And I'm looking over at our producer here. I'm not sure we've ever been in this place before, but I'm not sure we can accept the same house for the. Yeah, I just I don't think I'm 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 looking over at the judges and they're saying no. So no, we're gonna not allowed. not allowed. I'm sorry, you can't go with the prior one, and so we're gonna have to. You've got to have another one. All right, well, then I might be cliche again and say the Nathaniel Russell house. (laughs) But that is because we also, my company did the project to replace the HVAC system there about three years ago. And I have crawled all over that building and underneath that house. (laughs) So I I really appreciate that house for complete opposite reasons, I guess, from the Aiken Red House. That is a fully restored historic house museum that is fully heated and cooled. So very different. Well, we, we will definitely accept that answer because anyone, anyone who crawls around a historic building, you know, that, that's a good way to fall in love with the building by getting to know its bones. Oh, yeah. So if people wanted to get in touch with either of you, um, Mariah, maybe you can give us your contact information and, and how people could reach you at your firm and, and then Will the same for Historic uh, Charleston Foundation. Okay, well, I work for Whole Building Systems, and we have a website, which is wholebuildingsystems.com, and that's W-H-O-L-E, buildingsystems.com, not (laughs) (laughs) H-O-L-E. And you can reach me at my email address. It's mschwartz, M-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z, at wholebuildingsystems.com. And then we also have a Facebook page that you can look us up on. Awesome. And Will, how about you? I'm all over the place, but the easiest way is to call, just to call the office directly, um, Historic Charleston Foundation's office at 40 East Bay Street. That number is 843-723-1623, and someone will definitely be able to get in touch with me. <laughs> and I presume you also have a website. Yep, historicjarlstonfoundation.org. Yeah, and I know you're on Facebook too, because I'm a fan of you guys there, so you guys are, are pretty, you're, you're easy to find, you're all over the place. Facebook, Instagram, all that, all that good stuff. Good. Well, we really appreciate you guys both coming on the show today. I think it's been really interesting to see what's working in, in terms of how to heat and cool and care for these historic buildings and, and take them into their third and fourth centuries. We appreciate you coming on and also appreciate all the good work that you're doing on behalf of historic preservation. And next time we're down in Charleston, we'll be sure to stop in and say hello. Please do. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate it. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Stephen Israel. 
Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving.